Hebrews 8, and we are on verse 9. Hebrews 8 and verse 9. We're talking about the New Covenant. Last week I mentioned that in this New Covenant, the question came up actually at, at the debate when we were debating end times prophecy. How is it that in the Old Testament it says that he's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel? But here, in the book of Hebrews, the same passage where that promise is given in Jeremiah is cited saying that we have entered the new covenant through the blood of Jesus. So, therefore, how can you apply it to Israel? It's obviously applied to the church. And the answer to that question, from my perspective, is that it's both and, not either or. That Paul's olive tree analogy very well explains it. That we are grafted into a a set of promises that were given to the patriarchs and to the Jews. And that we are recipients of those promises by faith. And that we are in the New Covenant. And I also believe that, according to Romans 11, that at the very end of the age, at the end of the Great Tribulation, that a remnant, a substantial remnant of Jewish people will believe upon Messiah, and that will be the fulfillment of the new covenant to the house of Israel. But it's just still one new covenant. That's how I understand it. Is that right, Ryan? All right, thank you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it only does now through individual Jewish believers coming in, but to national Israel as a whole, it's not yet. But it, when it is, when it does happen, Romans eleven twenty six to twenty seven, it will still be the new covenant, and it will still be a fulfillment of the promise that was given to Jeremiah. So the strange thing isn't that the new covenant would be for the house of Israel. The strange thing is that we got in on it. But even that was predicted in the Bible, okay? Yeah, until the fullness of the Gentiles. So there's this timing mechanism, the fullness of the Gentiles, after which the focus turns to Israel. Yes? Uh, somebody on the radio program yesterday made a comment that we are between the covenants. Between the covenants? Yeah. Well, hmm. I don't know how you... Between what covenants, though? Yeah. Well, it isn't right. I don't know who said that, but right now we are in the new covenant, but it has yet future things to happen for its total fulfillment. So it's an already not yet, not either or. And uh, trying to say there's two different new covenants is, you know, people that say things like that just rightfully get criticized. It's it's just you're going further than is necessary to account for everything in the New Testament. All right, verse. Let's just read about this. Hebrews eight and verse nine. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Then verse ten. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. So, in the new covenant, 
all the people in the new covenant know the Lord. How does that how is that true today? Because you have to know the Lord to enter the covenant by faith. If you don't know if you don't know God, if you're not saved, you're not part of it. Well, we, know, we know the Lord because He lives in us, those that believe. Yeah. And the uh, thing that I see here is we don't have to follow the written law. We want to follow the written law because it is in us. Right. It's different. Israel and the Pharisees were wanting, were desiring the nation to follow the written law. And which they were unable to ever do successfully, as uh, was said in, in, in uh, Acts 15, yes. Well, the Lord, yeah, the, in the Old Testament passage, it was probably Yahweh. But the way we come to know the Father is through the Son. So, so as we understand now, it's not either or, it's both and. We know the Lord. In fact, we know the Lord is in, even in the context of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Exactly. And that's the new covenant preaching. That Jesus, blood of Jesus makes a new and living way into the holy place. We're going to see that in Hebrews. I'm going to, if we get that far... I'm going to read to you a sermon that Paul preached to Jewish people in Acts. So you see how he understood this and how he preached. Uh, it's very instructive to see the sermons that are preached in the Bible, especially in Acts. And it would be a good model for preachers today to try to understand how the gospel was preached. So, the idea is that everybody knows the Lord. I was just thinking of something, and I don't know if this works or not. You theologians can help me here. Um, I think that this would be a good argument against infant baptism. Because according to covenant theology, you bring your children into the covenant by baptizing them. Just like the children came into the covenant in the Old Testament by being circumcised. Now, if you think about that, what that does in the Old Testament, covenant membership is based on circumcision and being a part of it. But that's why there were so many that didn't know the Lord. You just have the national, you have Israel, the mass of Israel, and then within it, the saved remnant, as Romans 9 says. Okay? Well, what happens when you have this covenant theology and you bring your children into the covenant through baptism? You have a problem because now you have people in the covenant that don't know the Lord, but they're still considered in the covenant. So what happened during the time of the Puritans in order to deal with this? And then they also ended up with people in the churches that don't know the Lord. And so they had a halfway covenant, they called it. Yeah, Ryan. Well, this would be a really... I should write an article on that and throw it out there and see if my Reformed friends can beat me up on it. 
<laughs> yeah, the Catholics wouldn't be happy either. Well, uh, it's, but I, I just thought about that. But, you know, in Colossians, where they claim that infant baptism can be proved in Colossians, because it talks about circumcision and baptism in, within about three verses. But I believe it's talking about the circumcised heart. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 is the circumcised heart. And so, therefore, entrance into the new covenant is through the circumcised heart, not through the, any outward act, whether it be baptism or physical circumcision. Yeah, as a matter of fact, some people do believe that you can't count on your children being saved unless they've been baptized. I had some friends who uh, had a daughter named Megan, and they were evangelical Christian. This was back in the 80s, but they came from a Lutheran background, and so uh, all their relatives were Lutheran, and when they didn't baptize Megan as a baby, they were just outraged and said, what are you doing? How do you dare put your daughter at risk by not getting her baptized? Maybe she'll die and go to hell. And so they, so they kind of made a joke out of it and started calling her Megan the Pagan. <laughs> her name was Megan. <laughs> Yes, indeed. It reinforces the whole replacement theology idea because even how you enter the covenant then becomes the same thing. Now, I will, if there were any Lutheran or Reformed people here who disagreed with us, they would say we don't, we, we believe in salvation by faith and we don't believe in salvation by the act of baptism. You have to have your own faith. So they would say that much, but in some cases, well, they don't. They have godparents to have faith for the children. Yeah. So, and then they have confirmation where the children are to express their own faith. Um, I just don't see. I just don't see it being biblical. Yes. Well, no, actually, there's only a couple, um, and. But in the one case, I think it was the Philippian jailer, it says later that his household believed. Okay, so we, these are people old enough to have their own faith. Yes. In, in everything that Luther put in Scripture, yeah, you, right. You baptize believers. That's, that's what we believe. All right, let's get back to this idea of the New Covenant. <laughs> but this, this, this will help you understand it. Uh, you enter the New Covenant through a circumcised heart. And you must know the Lord, or you're not part of it. So when it says here, say to everyone, your brother, know the Lord. Well, if somebody's literally your brother, they do know the Lord, or they wouldn't be your brother. That's how I understand it. Now, how is that going to apply to Israel? Well, at the end, when you get go through the tribulation, and you've got the mark of the beast, and you've got people either coming to faith or caving into the Antichrist system, that I believe there's going to be a substantial number of Jewish people who come to faith and refuse this mark. And that at the very end, they'll look upon him whom they pierce. So this remnant at the end of the tribulation that Jesus 
gathers to himself from amongst the Jews of national Israel, they'll all be saved. The ones who aren't saved will have caved into the world system and they will come under judgment. So therefore, everyone will know the Lord. Everyone entering into the millennial kingdom will know the Lord. Yes. Amen. We believe in him whom we have not seen. Yeah, and, but at that time, they will literally see him. Everyone, and they're talking about, about the Jewish people, they're talking about everyone from the least to the greatest will know him. Yeah. He's right there. Right. But in order to enter, they'll have to come to faith. And he will be physically present. That's true. Yeah, a, a relationship of faith. Well, let's look up some of these cross-references for verse 9. Okay, this is going to be a new covenant. It's not like the one. Now, which one is he talking about here? There are, num- there are more than two covenants in the Bible. There was a covenant that was made with Abraham. There's a covenant made with Noah. And so, which one is he talking about, which is the one that's obsolete and passing away? Well, it says here, the one I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt it was the one that was instituted at Sinai in the wilderness. It was the Mosaic Covenant. So the old covenant that's obsolete is the Mosaic Covenant. Now that's important because people will say uh, all the covenants are, are abrogated and done away. But we would claim that the covenant that God made with Abraham concerning the land promise was not done away, and that's not the one we're talking about here. It was the one that was made with Moses that was done away. Right? And, and they didn't continue in it. They kept committing idolatry. They kept rebelling. And God sent prophets. We're gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself. Paul tells them that. <laughs> so did Stephen. Uh, but anyhow, they wouldn't listen to, to God, and so they ended up in, on the wrong side of the covenant. Let's go around here. No sword. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're, you're vulnerable. <laughs> All right. Exodus 19, 4 and 5. Um, Dan, Dean, Psalm 136, 11 to 14. Um, all right. Denise. I'm sorry. See, the thing about this Bible study, it helps me remember names. Uh, Exodus 24, 3 through 11. And again, I'm sorry. You don't read out loud? Okay. Karen? Yeah, it's always optional. I want everybody to know that. Exodus 34, 27 and 28. Stephanie, you got a Bible there? You lost your Bible. That's not good. All right. Um, do you, Steve? Just the, okay. Yeah, I got Old Testament here. Carolyn? Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 18. Dennis, Jeremiah 11, 7 and 8, and Noel, Jeremiah 31, 22. So, back over here to Exodus 19, 4 and 5. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, 
and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Awesome. Awesome. That's awesome. He, he brought them on eagles' wings. To where? To himself. To make them a people that would be God's people. Uh, peculiar people. That's the King James, right? Yeah. I remember when I first became a Christian and just about the King James was the, the Bible in use. And, and it says, you are a peculiar people. And we looked around and said, yeah, that's literally true. <laughs> Very peculiar people. Okay. Exodus 24, 3 through 11. That's a lot of verses, isn't it? Oh. Oh, no, you have Psalm 136, 11 through 14. Okay. <laughs> and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endureth forever, with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which divided the <coughs> Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever, and made Israel to pass through the midst of them, for his mercy endureth forever. Amen. You know, they, the Psalms in the part of the, the Jewish uh, worship and the synagogue and the feasts and everything that the Jews had, they were always reminding themselves of what God did. The Passover. What did God do? What did God do? And that's how they maintained their national identity. They knew who God was and, and how He revealed His character through His mighty actions. And then they knew who they were as His people, or at least who they were to be. So, history is always important to the Jewish people. And when I get to, if we get to this thing about Paul's sermon, you'll see that whenever in, in Acts they preached to the Jews, they always reminded, reminded them of their history. And Jesus did the same thing in Matthew 23. He reminded them of their history. You always killed the prophets. You know, so they remind of their bad history as well as their good history. Okay, let's try the Exodus 24, 3 through 11, Denise. Wow, that's the institution of the part of the institution of the old covenant. But it's amazing that they agreed to the covenant. God said, "Okay, I brought you to me, yeah, and you're going to be my people." And here's the here's the stipulations. And they said, "Well, everything the Lord says, we'll do." How long did that last? <laughs> well, it lasted until they built that golden calf. <laughs> 
But nevertheless, there, there was an bl- institution of that covenant with blood. And la- elsewhere in Hebrews, it makes mention of that passage that Denise read, is that there's a blood covenant and, and people were sprinkled. And later, we'll see that the true blood of sprinkling is that of Jesus. And so, there's what, what was wrong? What was wrong with this old covenant? Well, they didn't do what they said they were going to do, which is keep the stipulations. And therefore, they, in going into rebellion, they uh, got into big trouble. Okay, Exodus 34, 27, and 28. Amen. So there, there was the words of the covenant that God gave to Moses. Uh, by the way, for some of you that are newer to our church, the reason we go through all these cross-references is that my desire is to teach the entire Bible. And there's just a little time. Okay, and so we're preaching in Genesis, Matthew, and Philippians right now. And starting next month, Ryan's going to start preaching out of Galatians. And we want everybody to know the whole Bible. So the only way to get into some of these important ones is to go through a lot of cross-references so that we learn Exodus, we learn the Psalms, we learn Deuteronomy, because I just don't have time uh, to, you know, go verse by verse by verse through the whole Bible in just in a Sunday school class. So we're moving around so that if you're a part of this congregation, ten years from now, you're going to really know your Bible. Okay, so that's why we do this. Yes, sir. This is the verse I was thinking of last week when I asked you about the Ten Commandments. Okay. This seems to indicate the Ten Commandments Very much so. And you know what's interesting about it in the Hebrew? It doesn't say commandments. It just says ten words. Ten words. Ten words. I don't know. It's just what it says. Ten words. But, I mean, the... Yeah, the, uh, besides that, I, I don't know whether, I think the significance of the ten words were that God spoke them himself, and he wrote them with his finger in stone. Um, maybe that's why it says in John, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Maybe that's a link to, that, to, to the Ten Commandments. I don't know. I, I didn't know that until I got to seminary, and I said, you know, to Dr. Block, and he said, no, that's ten words in the Hebrew. All right. Um, Jeremiah 11, 7 and 8. I can't get anything right today. Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18. Wow. That must have been awful hard for Moses. I mean, imagine that he was the one that went onto the mountain and pleaded for God not to destroy them. And so just before he died, God told them, well, after you die, they're going to rebel against me. 
and wish they did. Um, but God always keeps a remnant, and He always keeps His promises. But, yeah, that's an interesting passage. Jeremiah 11, 7 and 8. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ears, but walked, each one, in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, so the curses came instead of the blessings. Um, well, this is cross-references to Hebrews 8 and 9. For they did not continue in my covenant. So that's why we need a new one. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 22, no. 22. 22. 31, 22. Oh, no, no, no. 32. 31, 32. Sorry. Wow. I was their husband, but they broke it. So, we have a broken covenant. And now we have a new covenant. Let's read about that. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this that last little phrase is important. That's the covenant formula. That's the key phrase in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'm going to show you, in fact, it's one of the cross-references, that Revelation ends up with that in the book of Revelation. After the judgment, after the uh, books are opened and the great white throne judgment and the separation of the chief and the goats and the casting of the, everyone into the lake of fire whose name is not found in the book, after all of that, it says he's going to dwell with his people. Excuse me, and he'll be their God and they'll be his people. So that is God's purpose. Uh, Steve? And I, in, in regards to breaking the covenant, you know, when we start going away from the Lord, it seems like there, there, there seems like there's consequences. And it seems like our nation, right now, we have an election on Tuesday, and it seems like our nation right now is openly defying the God's glory. You know, they're tearing down the Ten Commandments, they're, they're instituting homosexual marriages. What can America expect? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I've heard this argument that well, we're the most righteous country in the world, but but the thing is, when when does God accept self-righteousness? Yeah, I well, we're in a bad state, and um, who knows what's going to happen Tuesday? But it almost seems like eventually people get what they want. I mean, if enough people want wickedness, they get it, and and it definitely isn't a good thing. We should resist. Yeah, well, the only difference, Steve, is that we don't, I don't think America has a covenant with God the same way that Israel did. I'm not saying God won't judge us, but we're, our big issue, I think, is whether we support Israel. Amen. And as Christians, we, what, what would we like as Christians? Number one, that God would, that, that our leaders would support Israel. Number two, that we'd have the freedom to worship God and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, that our laws would reflect Biblical laws in order that our souls might not be vexed like Lot's when he beheld the unprincipled conduct of sensual men. So we would like to see the laws restraining evil. 
even restraining our own evil. Okay. Yeah. God doesn't judge just one person. He judges the, judges the whole yeah. group. So yeah. why, why, why would that principle be different in the United States? Um, you know, so I, I, that's, I, I don't know how it works out in history. Uh, in, in some more scripture, it says that God says, will not be mine. He will, he, that he will, uh, whatever you sow, you will reap. And that Galatians 6, yeah. his wrath is going to be revealed against all ungodliness, not some ungodliness. Okay. Okay, I agree. Okay, Tyler. Well, I was going to say that the difference is that Israel was God's actual; He was the king of Israel. He was that was the visible kingdom on the earth, which meant that America, regardless of who's in power, though it would be nice if we made good decisions and did what was right in God's eyes, it doesn't matter. We're still not God's real. He hasn't put us as His visible kingdom. So it, America is not Israel. Okay, see now that that is uh, that's something to keep in mind because, for instance, Dave Wilkerson, who I admire about what he does in the fact he preaches the gospel, but he he keeps saying America is Israel, and I don't know where he gets that idea. America is not Israel, and and as much as you try to claim America is Israel, you denigrate the true true value of Israel. We are goyim; we're one of the nations. Now, I believe that God will bless those who bless Israel, and I think my biggest fear about this election is that America is going to turn against Israel. And that is clear in the Bible. We turn against Israel, we're in trouble. Um, I'll put it. <laughs> you can vote for whomever you see fit, but be informed. Uh, Brian. They're going to give allegiance to the beast. Well, yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I've been reading a book called Hellfire Nation, The Politics of Sin in America. And the thesis of the book, and I don't agree with the guy. I think he's probably both, well, I won't say, but different than I do. Um, but his idea is that we've always had the idea that America is this covenant kingdom that's a new Israel that was established by God. The Puritans had that idea. All right? And he quotes the Puritans to that end, that we are... This man, visible manifestation of the kingdom of God, a city on a hill. And the political battles, according to this guy's thesis, that have run from um, the 1640s until today are always battling about who are the sinners that are keeping us from being the city on the hill. And 
what's interesting, the way it divides out, just if you look back at it, when Roosevelt came in with the social gospel, and, he, and I was just reading that part, he quotes Roosevelt, who's basically preaching sermons. Um, Franklin Roosevelt. And he said, the sinners are anybody who's greedy and anybody who fails to be unselfish and helps the poor. Now, previous presidents were saying the sinners were the distillers and the drunkards. And before that, the sinners were the slaveholders in the 1850. Before that, the sinners were drunkards because they had the temperance movement twice before it succeeded. And before that, I mean, the question is, all right, who's the sinners? Now, if you want to understand liberal and conservative, liberal says the sinners are businessmen, people that don't pay enough taxes, people that don't help the poor, people that don't give people personal liberties, like to do whatever sexual things or abortion, whatever they want to do. That's who the sinners are, because we're self-righteous and we're trying to push our way on everybody else. Conservative says the sinners are the homosexuals, the abortionists, um, the people that are doing wicked, evil things because they're personally responsible for their own behavior. Because uh, the liberal believes that social conditions determine your moral behavior. So that the reason people are murdering and taking drugs and doing evil is because they've been given a bad social condition. Therefore, that makes them do it. So you can't hold them accountable. You have to improve the social condition. That's how it plays out. Then the Bible says both Republicans and Democrats are sinners. All of sinners. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's enough sin to go around. <laughs> well, and I think most most conservative evangelicals tend to be Republican because we our belief system is this: that people are personally responsible for their own moral condition. Even though you're born into the world sinner, you can't say. I have to take drugs and I have to do evil because I didn't have enough money. We would not accept that argument, and we don't. And we think it's false, and so that's why we tend to be conservative. Okay, does that make sense, Steve? Um, I, I a lot of times we think. I have an uncle that promotes. He doesn't believe in God. He's the most virtuous, caring. Yeah. In the Psalms it says, in our heart, the fool says, there is no God. No God. Right. So in the mind, they know he's there, but in the, in, when it comes to the heart, mm-hmm. they, they don't want to have anything to do with God. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, a person can be just a moral, in, in the worldly sense, can be a moral person, a wonderful person, a compassionate person, but, but from God's perspective, that person doesn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, right. Your friend, Dan's friend, your friend emailed me. I, I emailed him back, Dan. Yeah, I, I emailed him back. He has a friend who used to be a charismatic pastor who's now an atheist. And he, and he sent me an email because Dan had been evangelizing him and he got him all stirred up. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, so he sent me an email and he said kind of what you were saying, uh, Steve. He said, Ever since I have gotten rid of my faith and renounced Christ and renounced Christianity, I have a happy family, I've got plenty of money, I've got a good life, and I feel good about myself and where I'm at. I, I, don't, I mean, he says, the kind of stuff you preach, 
is burdensome and, and it makes it, it makes me I don't like it I don't want to hear it basically yeah I don't want to hear this because it troubles me I'm a very good happy moral person without Jesus um, and so I wrote him back and he says also there's no proof of the Bible because if the Bible were true I renounce my faith he said I renounce Jesus Christ I, I won't I won't believe in him I defy God if there was a God he says I don't believe there is one. And I'm happy, healthy, and wealthy, and nobody's punishing me. So where's your God? And so I, what I sent back to the atheist was this. I, I sent him a link to my article on the Hebrew lament and the problem of evil. And I said, the Bible acknowledges that happy, healthy, wealthy people defy God. Yes. Psalm 73. What about Job? What about Habakkuk? Habakkuk was complaining the same thing. The, the, the Old Testament saints complain. The, the happy, healthy, wealthy people are in rebellion. And God, you're not cursing them like you said you would. And then it says in Psalm 73, but I beheld their end. Now, ultimately, this gets worked out in eternity. And don't assume that your prosperity and your happiness and all these things are a sign that there is no God or that God doesn't care what you do. Right? We don't fit in. We don't fit in. <laughs> All right. One more thing, and I've got to get back to this. You know, it says in Romans that, 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 that when we don't like to retain the knowledge of God, God gives us over. Right. It's called a judgment of reprobation. It's a form of wrath. You know, so God yes. to be revealed on the God. It's the worst mm-hmm. thing that can happen to someone is for them, for God to give you over. It seems like some people don't have a conscience, so they can go out and get wealthy and do all these things. Because God's already given them over. Do you think that could happen to America too? I think it's already given. Eventually, yeah. gives us what we want. Well, I don't think we can get Exactly. Okay, um, I got to get back on track here with this. So, <laughs> you shall, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That I was saying, I was making a claim. That's the covenant formula. And Dr. Daniel Block, one of the best Old Testament teachers I've ever met, who I had the wonderful privilege of sitting under before he quit at the seminary. I'm glad I got in on his classes while he was still there. Was just bringing this stuff home to us. And that the whole point is that God is God for a people. Amen. A people. And the people are going to be people that are in a covenant relationship Amen. with Him. And an issue today is how does one enter into a covenant relationship with God? And our claim is, is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the shed blood of the covenant, and by faith. We come by faith, trusting His finished work, and not in ourselves. That's how you become a people. Amen. And you become a part of the people. All right. Um, some quick cross-references here. Pat, Exodus 34:27. Um, Kathy, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. We referred to that one earlier. Uh, Lois, Jeremiah 24:7. Sherry, Jeremiah 31. What? Pass. <laughs> okay. Scott, Jeremiah 31:1. 31:1. Jeremiah 31:1. And Sam, Zechariah 8:8. Norma, Zechariah 13.9, and 
Cladoris, you get the best one. Revelation 21.3. That was the one I was thinking of that caps off the Bible with this same idea. 21.3. All right, so back to Pat with uh, Exodus 34.27. Okay, these are the words of the covenant that I made. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the, and the heart of thy, of thy feet to love the Lord. That, that thou mayest live. God will circumcise your heart and that of your descendants in order that you might live. The promise of the circumcised heart. And I would argue that that, well, Paul says in Romans that if your heart isn't circumcised, even if you are literally a Jew, you've still got a problem. Amen. You can't just trust in your national heritage. You have to have a circumcised heart to enter into this new covenant. Okay, then uh, Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. I will give, God gives us a heart to know the Lord. I will give them a heart to know me, and I will be their, they will be my people, I will be their God, and they'll serve me with their whole heart. So that's a work of grace. That's the kind of work of grace that is necessary to, to enter to the, this new covenant. It's a work of sovereign grace that God does, and He said He would do it, and He does it, and He's doing it. Jeremiah 31 1. There's that same formula. I will be their God, they will be my people. Zechariah 8.8 8. And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in truth and in righteousness. There it is again. Only this time specifically talking about Israel and Jerusalem. So that's why I believe in future prophecy that that will actually be fulfilled yet. Zechariah 13 and verse 9. Wow. Do you find this a few times in the Bible? Look at all these. This is just a little smattering. But here's the capstone of them all, the one in Revelation, Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. There is the summation of salvation history, even after the millennium. This comes after the millennium. In the new heavens and the new earth, the tabernacle of God is with men, and they will be only the redeemed, gathered together from all the centuries, and they shall be a people, and he will be our God. Revelation 21.3. So this covenant formula is found from the Old Testament all the way where it's summarized in Revelation And nothing's more important than having a heart to know the Lord.
which verse 11 says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. And this is the new covenant idea of everyone that is actually a part of the covenant knows the Lord. Amen. So that's why I just don't see this halfway covenant or uh, some of these things that have done in, happened in church history. Um, I think one of the most damaging things to Christianity is when people begin to believe that it's just hereditary. Um, you know, uh, it's, just, it's just the traditions of man. And so I'm, uh, you ask people, are you Christian? Well, yeah, I was born in America. <laughs> that's, that's not enough. Are you a Christian? Well, I was baptized Lutheran. You can be a Lutheran and a Christian. <laughs> Just in case our Lutheran friends, I, Tom Brock might be listening to our radio show here. <laughs> can God save a Lutheran? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. But I, I know what you mean. Sometimes we get too sectarian, we, we give the wrong answer. When I got, uh, I was born again on July 18th, 1971. And I was a junior at Iowa State University, at least had been for a quarter. And when I switched to go into the ministry, ended up at, at North Central, I so had a burden for the campus that the people that I was, there were 20,000 students there, and I know most of them didn't know the Lord. So that first year that I was a Christian, every weekend I drove down to Ames, Iowa, and spent the weekend preaching the gospel around the campus. Um, and we led some people to the Lord, but... I remember one time when I was just you know, 21-year-old going around talking about the Bible and telling people about Jesus. Here comes this guy with a Bible. I, I saw him. I thought, oh, another Christian. I said, hi, I'm a Christian. He goes, I'm a navigator. <laughs> I go, okay, you're a navigator. I'm a Christian. No, are you a Christian too or just a navigator? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think he was more worried about his group than about whether he knew the Lord. And I think it's important to not say, oh, I'm this or that. But being a Christian means you know the Lord. And really what matters is if you know the Lord. So everyone in the New Covenant knows the Lord. Now, there are people in the visible church that don't. Amen. I'm going to have to write an article about that. The next article is going to be talking about that. The visible church in theology is everyone who adheres to Christianity and is willing to claim to be a Christian. All right? And it's a necessary idea. I know the Bible doesn't talk about the visible and the invisible church, but throughout the history of theology, you have to address the issue. Okay? Because anytime you have a church and you have people visibly coming into it and saying, yes, I believe these things, I'm, a, I'm committed to it, there's always the possibility that you have your Judases or you have... I mean, there's always going to be some people who just really don't know the Lord, no matter how pure you try to be in your doctrine. And so the visible church would be everybody, and the invisible church are the people who are truly regenerate. All right? 
And, and those, why, they're called invisible because they're known only to the Lord for sure. Okay, we have various degrees of assurance that we're Christians and other people are Christians, but God ultimately knows who are His. So what I am going to write about is that the seeker-sensitive movement is trying to maximize the visible church at all costs with little concern whatsoever about the invisible church. In other words, if we get 10,000 people in our building and only 2% of them are really Christian, that's okay because the 10,000 are here and that's a good thing because they're churched now rather than unchurched. Whereas evangelicalism in its roots, what it used to be fundamentalism, number one concern was that all of these mainline denominations, visible church, are huge, but there's so few that are in the invisible church. They're, they're so unconcerned about the conversion of souls. So you, and so fundamentalism preached the gospel rigorously in order to maximize the size of the invisible church. Well, I think that we're going backwards on that one. And so what we need to do is preach the gospel so that God would convert people and add those. It says the Lord added to his church. He does that through conversions. Yes, Taylor. Right. Very good point. I want to repeat it here for the, for the recording. He said that even though the phrase, the term isn't used, it's clearly taught because Jesus said, some will say, Lord, Lord, and he said, I'll never know you. Matthew 7. So the Lord recognized that amongst the visible, or the church, that can be seen visible because they're people and you can see them, there'll be some that don't really know the Lord even though they say, Lord, Lord. Amen. All right? Now, what, what I believe is this. That if we preach the gospel, the means of grace, all right, Amen. if the means of grace are foremost and primary, gospel preaching, Bible teaching, and the communion, the Lord's Supper, fellowship, prayer, these things that we talked about, if those things are prominent and the gospels proclaimed strongly from the pulpit, that what we're concerned about is maximizing that invisible church, Amen. the number that are converted. And if, indeed, while we do that, some people end up being willing to sit under that kind of preaching, even though it's offensive to sinners, and if they're willing to submit to it and be here and be part of it, then that's fine. They should be received, because such people may indeed be, you know, eventually converted, or, and we can't be 100% sure. But, we, but if, we, if we water down that, if we make this nice thing that's appealing to the unregenerate mind, the only thing we're caring about is this visible church and its Amen. size. Amen. So, you know, I think I better keep going. There's a lot to talk about here, but I want to at least fin- finish this. Uh, I'm going to write an article about it, and then we can discuss discuss that. But it needs to get into the... It, it, it's very, very important concerning this debate about the seeker-sensitive movement, all right? Because the seeker-sensitive movement is less concerned about the invisible and more concerned about the visible. Okay, everyone's going to know the Lord. That's what we're wanting to see, that everybody would know the Lord. But I guess the reason I brought that up here is that no matter what, in in any given church, in any given local church, that really won't be the case. So the church itself is a different thing than the new covenant. Everyone that does know the Lord is a part of the new covenant, wherever they may be. But we won't visibly see that until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. And then literally everybody will know the Lord. And we'll see them and we'll know that they know the Lord. Until the, well, I don't want to complicate it. Let's look up at uh, uh, Norm, 1 Chronicles 28.9, Dave, Ezra 7.25.
uh, Tim, Isaiah 2, 3. I think I see a Judith back there. There you are. Isaiah 54, 13. Daniel, Jeremiah 31, 34. Ryan, Ezekiel 34, 30. And Kevin, Habakkuk 2, 14. And I got a couple left over. Uh, Cindy, John 6:45, and Troy, 1 John 2:27. Then I didn't get to Paul's thing, so we'll have to do that next week. Okay, 1 Chronicles 28 uh, in verse 9. That's what David was telling Solomon. Amen. Ezra 7.25 You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God. Then you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. You teach them to know the Lord. That was, that was interesting. That was a pagan... Uh, king that God raised up that sent Ezra back to, to teach the laws of God to people in Israel. It's interesting there. Isaiah 2 3. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Lois, are you going to say something about that? We used to sing it. That's what she wanted to say. Yeah, why aren't we singing yet? We'd be singing for a month if we sang every song that we used to sing, but it would be fun. Okay. They'll be embedded in you forever. Come, let us go into the house of the Lord. Well, it's still embedded in me. Okay, Isaiah 54, 13. Okay, they're all taught of the Lord. Jeremiah 31, 34. Yes, that's our passage that's being cited in Hebrews. Ezekiel 34.30. There it is. A people, a God for a people. Habakkuk 2.14. The earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord. John 6.45. Wow. So if you don't come to Jesus, you can't claim to be taught of God. That's what he says. 1 John 2.27. Okay. I think it says in the numeric standard that you all know. So in a sense, everyone is anointed uh, who is part of the new covenant. Amen. 
Everyone has the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and they know the Lord. So, next week, I promise to get to that sermon in Acts that Paul preached, and we'll, we'll finish chapter 8, and then we'll start on chapter 9, hopefully, although, yeah, we got through three verses today, so there's hope. To... Okay, God bless you, and uh, see you upstairs in a bit.